So we now find um, kind of in the passage Jesus here in in Jericho. It's kind of city, um, you know, you probably have familiar with it from, you know, the story all the way in the book of Joshua, you know, and they kind of march around the city and the walls fall and the whole, the whole shebang, but they're kind of in this, this city and, um, this huge crowd is following Jesus as usual. And he's been, he's been teaching, he's been healing, um, as he moves closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's making his way there. And, uh, this group of people that are following him, are trying to spend as much time as possible with him, right? The, the, they're making their way to Jerusalem uh, as well, and they're trying to, to spend time with him um, because shortly uh, they are all making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Uh, and so they're uh, making their way there because the, the feast required that everybody would, would make their way there to celebrate this feast. And so on the way there, we kind of catch this situation here where Jesus is with these people and, and there's these two blind guys and they're by the road and, and Jesus is kind of passing by them and they're kind of yelling, you know, crying out to him and, and everyone's like, no, shut up, stop doing that. And then they get louder, they get crazier. Um, and in this moment, uh, Jesus hears them. And, and what they're crying out here, uh, we, we get from the text, they're saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Right. And then everyone's like, oh, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Be quiet. And they get louder. They, they press into it even further. And as this is being said, uh, these two guys, um, you know, they're just kind of sitting there hearing the, uh, the large group of people, large group of travelers making their way in. This is uh, obviously a, a pretty uh, busy thoroughfare. And uh, Jesus hears them and he comes to them and he um, sees what's going on in their situation. But the reason that he does this is because of their, uh, of their, um, their not just their request, but the way that they are addressing him. Remember, he's making his way to Jerusalem. It's the week, uh, to, it's, it's the time where they're about to uh, celebrate the Passover feast. And, and here, uh, he is coming in now and responding specifically to this phrasing, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And this would have been something that would have uh, been strictly used of, uh, of the Messiah, this would have been a phrase that would have been associated with this promised deliverer, this promised figure. Uh, of course, this is, um, it springs board from, uh, you kind of uh, get its roots from several different places. Um, of course, there's this promised uh, lineage that the kingdom of uh, David will not end, its lineage will continue. There's the promise of a king, but I think we kind of find these all summarized uh, neatly, of course, in that passage in Isaiah chapter 9 that we frequently reference more so around Christmas. Right, You find uh, this description in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, right there you go, over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. So as this is being said, this is kind of like the backdrop to all of it. He's, they're calling out, son of David, have mercy on us. So this is a, a charged term that's, that's remarking that Jesus is this promised Messiah, but it also is associated with these other things, that he's going to bring peace and he's going to establish his kingdom and, and uh, his government will increase. And, and it's, he's going to... Um, He's going to like execute judgment and justice forever. And so this is something that, that is existing here in this moment, in this time. And, and so as they're making their way, Jesus sees these men. He's like, okay, these guys, like maybe they got a clue. He goes over to them and sees their situation. He hears their request and he responds. He, uh, he hears that they want to uh, have their blindness removed. I think that's a pretty like specific, reasonable request for people who are blind. You got like this one problem and, and they say, we want you to do this. Now, Jesus indeed does it. He participates in this and he says, uh, um, he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, that would have been it. That would have been enough. That would have been great. But what we find here is that Jesus is again operating in response, not just to uh, the fact that these men had a need, but that this need also lines up with his messianic work. And, and maybe it's these guys who, who know this and they're asking this. Uh, this would have been something that would have been promised of the Messiah. In Isaiah 35, verse 5, we find, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing. So you find that this is a request that, that squarely lines up with like Jesus is being like, oh, you, here's an opportunity for me to demonstrate that like, yeah, I am the son of David. I am the promised Messiah here. This is exactly in line with what I'm trying to do now. I'm trying to establish who I am. And so he opens the eyes of this blind man. And now as, as we see this, they get up and they follow him. So now they're with him. So he's got this big procession. Everyone's making their way into Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and, and that brings us to chapter 21, the triumphal entry, uh, the Palm Sunday. Now, if you, if, you, if you ever are like, what the heck is the point of this? Uh, you know, because most of the time you think about it, uh, Palm Sunday, you think about the triumphal entry. It's just basically like, yeah, we got like, like palm leaves and like we wave them and like people put stuff down and like that's it. Right? Like, what's the point of this? The key to unlocking, like, just put this in your, in your memory bank here for the future, right? The key to unlocking and understanding uh, Palm Sunday, the key to unlocking the triumphal entry is squarely rooted in the Passover feast. This is about the Passover. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about the Passover. It's the beginning of this feast. If you recall, the Passover was instituted all the way back in uh, the book of Exodus. It's, it's a situation here where uh, God is trying to rescue his people from Egypt, right? You, you guys remember the story? Uh, they've been kind of uh, enslaved there in Egypt for 400 plus years and they're, uh, they're, they can't get out and God sends a deliverer to them. And he demonstrates his power and authority again and again. And, and this uh, 
uh, leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, he refuses to listen. And over time, the, uh, the judgments that God is bringing upon the gods of Egypt and, uh, and the people of Egypt increase more and more and more and more. And finally culminating in this final judgment that is said that the firstborn will die. The firstborn of every household. It's, it's a completely uh, 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 judgment that is for everyone. Israel is not excluded right? It's, it's literally every single person, the firstborn of every, of every household will die. Israel is not excluded. And so in this process, he tells them that what you ought to do is that the way that you will escape this judgment is through this uh, Passover feast that is being instituted. And so you can read about it uh, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, uh, uh, um, through se- it's kind of the whole chapter, but what you find here is that the Lord gives him uh, a specific uh, way to escape this judgment. The judgment will come, but here's how you get out of it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So this is the prescription. This, uh, as this uh, angel of death, this final plague that comes through, uh, is making its way through the land of Egypt in order to uh, bring God's judgment. He says, here's what you do. You uh, bring, you select this lamb that is uh, without blemish. You bring it into your house and uh, you make sure that you're keeping track of it. It's, it's got to be a perfect lamb. And then on this uh, final day, then you uh, kill the lamb and then you take the, the blood of the lamb and you, you paint it on the door of your house. And then, of course, there the, the lamb is eaten as part of this feast, and there's other things that are instituted. And, and so the idea here, then, is that as this uh, plague happens, as the angel of death makes its way through the land of Egypt, it will come uh, and see the blood on the doorpost, and it will pass over that household, right? So that's kind of where you get this, this phrasing from that's going to uh, pass over. And so uh, Sunday is the first day of the Passover, Right? So that's kind of what's happening here. They're making their way here uh, to celebrate the Passover lamb. And so they are uh, journeying in with much of Israel at this time. And so this is what brings us uh, here to our, our text in uh, Matthew chapter 21. Now, as they're doing this, right, um, they are in a situation that is uh, not exactly the same, but you'll find that the way that the people respond is connected to their understanding of the Passover. It's connected to what they see and believe about uh, who Jesus is and how he's demonstrating who he is and how he's making his way in and what the political climate is at the time. And so this is what we read in uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. 
Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village, uh, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put um, on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And so we find here uh, that this is the situation. They're kind of coming in, and Jesus stops things, and he says, okay, guys, before we go in, I want you to go into this village here, and you're going to find this uh, particular donkey. We need to bring uh, these animals out here, and I'm going to ride them in. Now, this is a particular um, demonstration that Jesus is making, because at this point, the locations that it gives us, they're like maybe two miles away, right? So this is, you know, maybe a 30-minute walk, 40-minute walk for them to like make their way in if they were just like cruising in. This is not like, oh man, we're not going to make it the rest of the way. This journey is getting tough. Like this is, this is literally to make a point. And that's what, uh, that's what we find here. This was done, uh, it says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, these instructions, of course, we find are rooted in uh, the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that's where we find this citation from. And, and so, in making his way into Jerusalem in this manner, Jesus is again making an explicit claim. He's saying, Here, here's, uh, here's who I am. He's not hiding it anymore. He's demonstrating that he is this promised Messiah. The king is coming to you, Zechariah 9, 9 says. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. Right? So he's making his way in. He's a humble king. He's not one who is coming in on this war horse. He's not one who's walking in with this big uh, battalion of people behind him. He is coming in on a, a very practical animal. And so as he makes his way in, he's proclaiming his, uh, who he is. He's fulfilling scripture, but he's also showing to the city that he is someone who is uh, full of justice and peace. And so now he makes his way down um, that, that kind of path down the, the Mount of Olives, and he's going to cross over this um, brook in the Kidron Valley and come up through the East Gate and onto the Temple Mount. Uh, it, and as he does so, the crowd is waiting. Verse 8 tells us that most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed, uh, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus makes his way down. He's making this declaration of who he is. Clearly, the people are kind of picking up on like what's happening here at the moment. But again, their backdrop to this is the Passover. They're responding 
as Jesus being this promised Messiah, right? As they would have been familiar with much of the prophecies, as they would have been familiar with uh, Isaiah chapter 9 that we read earlier, saying that he is uh, this promised Davidic king, that he is the one whose government will, uh, will never fail, that will go on forever, that he will establish peace and justice. And the background that they're, they're going into a feast that's about to celebrate Passover, which is squarely about uh, liberating uh, the people of Israel from Egypt, from their oppressors uh, who, were, who, were, um, who were really uh, abusing them for like 400 years and, and, and taking them out of that and not allowing Israel to live as they, as they wanted to live. Uh, and, and rescuing from that. Now, in this situation, on this Sunday, uh, the, the people of Israel are occupied by Rome. And so they are living under oppressors. They have, uh, they've been living under Italic rule for quite some, for some time. And, and in this, they are also experiencing these same frustrations. They've been fighting uh, against Rome, and Rome has allowed them to do certain things, but they have anticipated the day when this promised deliverer will come and drive out the foreign nations and that they will be able to, to live as uh, they want. They will be able to, to flourish as God's people. And so they've got this opportunity of the king coming, and they see what's happening, and they're thinking, okay, here's what's about to happen. He's going to make his way in. And so they are uh, participating in things that would mark the entrance of the king. They would lay down their cloaks. This is done many times throughout Israel's history. As kings would enter cities, they would take uh, these and put them as, as kind of this welcoming party for the king. They would rip branches down off of, of, and they were laying them down and waving them in the air. Now, this is uh, significant for a couple reasons. This is uh, something that has always, throughout Israel's history, been symbolic of freedom. Uh, all the way back from uh, the book of Leviticus up until this present moment, it has been a symbol marking this idea of freedom. It's, it's, it's something that you find all, all throughout Israel's culture, but was particularly um, brought forth as a symbol of the revolution uh, 200 years prior to this, as this guy Judas Maccabees led a revolt. This was something that they would use as kind of their, their rallying cry, their symbol, waving the palm frond was like the, kind of this idea of like, we're about to be free. This was something that, that uh, in a sense, their, their flag of sorts. And so they're bringing this out, and they're living under the occupation of Rome. They are waiting on the, to celebrate a feast um, that celebrates their deliverance from Egypt. And they've got a king coming in, and they're thinking, like, this is it. So they've got their palms, uh, their palm fronds, and they're waving them, like, it's time to be free. We're ready to go. We're ready to get out of here. And as they make their, their way in, as Jesus makes his way in here, this city is, is just packed with people. But more than that, in order to celebrate the feast of Passover, you needed quite a few lambs. So simultaneous to this, there are also uh, many livestock that are being driven in. The lambs are being pushed into the city because by that day, people had to make some selections as to like what was going to be their lamb for their household. So these lambs are getting pushed in. People are making their way as, as pilgrims to celebrate this feast. And all of a sudden, as 
all of these people are making their way in, this, this shout comes out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people are celebrating this. The king is coming. All these, like, all these sheep making their way into the city. People are coming in. It's just, it's packed. And they're crying out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is, again, this kind of celebration of the Messiah. And this would have been a situation where the religious leaders were nervous. Uh, if the Romans were present there, they would kind of be a little bit on edge because they don't want to have uh, kind of a riot. But the religious leaders definitely were not happy about what was happening here. They wanted to kind of keep the status quo, and they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. If you, if you look at the account of, um, of this in Luke's gospel, you find that some of the Pharisees who are in the crowd there, as Jesus is making his way in and they see what's happening, they tell Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he tells them, he tells the, the, the religious leaders, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. He's like, it's kind of like pointless because like if I told them to be quiet and they were quiet, like the stones would start yelling. That like the, all of creation would respond. They tried to get the people to stop declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, but nothing can stop this event. He's making his way in to the city. He's heading there at this time. Now, they, you would think that the religious leaders of all people should have known this. Because this also isn't an, it's timed with the Passover, but it's also like not an accidental day. This isn't like a, like, oh, I guess this is happening this week. This would have been something that could have been like literally on the calendar and said, it's, it's literally going to happen this literal day. A forecasted event. The religious leaders should have been aware, and maybe perhaps some of them were aware, maybe some people were aware of the prophecy at the time, because they would know that according to uh, the book of Daniel, that it was said when this promised deliverer would come. Now, we're not going to do all the crazy math here, but I'm going to kind of break it down for you in a real simple way. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, there's kind of this breakdown of, of 70 weeks that are kind of forecasted there uh, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And, and essentially, um, it kind of lays out the timing of this. And, and so what you need to know is, is a, a week is equivalent to like seven years. That's, that's kind of like happening here in this. So I'll, I'll kind of read it for you, and you can kind of help put, um, you can kind of put the pieces together as we go. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we read this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for, for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore, right, so I mean, you just in that first one, you kind of get, understand what's happening. Like, okay, there's going to be a timeline, 70 weeks, and like, there's going to be an end to sin. Like, here's the goal. This is the goal. There's going to be an end to sin. To atone for iniquity. Like you, it's pretty straightforward here. Then we get verse 25. Know therefore and understand, right? So here you go, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again 
uh, with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and there shall be uh, war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall one come who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you kind of get this, like all this crazy stuff, right? We don't have time to unpack like all of that. But if you break it all down, you kind of end up being able to like be like, okay, here's how all these things break down time-wise. And it lines up with this day because we know the day that uh, King Artaxerxes gives this command to uh, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So you like have an actual event that's there in history that you can be like, okay, it was like from this day. And then you can be like, okay, how, how much time is going to pass? Pow, this lines up. And you find that this is the day that this is decreed. So these religious leaders would have been like, yeah, we should have expected this. They should have known what was happening. This lands squarely on this particular day. This is the day, the first day of the Passover. As they're beginning to celebrate the feast, as they're making their way in, the timing is extremely important. Not just because it's a promised day, but because of what it symbolizes. Remember, this is all about the Passover. He's putting an end to sin. He's putting an end uh, to our iniquities. He's going to make atonement for our iniquities. And so, for hundreds of years, they've been sacrificing these lambs. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of lambs is not sufficient to put an end to it. What is sufficient is the blood of Christ. And so this day is different. Because as Israel is making its way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, as all these lambs are being driven in so that way these families can go up and make their selection, so in the same way is God driving his perfect lamb into the city. He's sending him in there He's presenting his lamb, his spotless lamb to the world, saying, here's who I have provided. You might choose one of these others, but this is the only lamb that will put an end to sin. The only lamb that will, will end your iniquity. This is the only lamb that will bring peace. This same day that the men of Israel would be choosing their lamb, the same day that the high priest would be making the selection uh, that would choose the, the lamb that would make atonement for all of Israel is the same day that God is presenting his lamb that would make pay atonement for the whole world. For all people of all time. And while this is happening, that cry rings out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is Jesus's, or here is God's pure, spotless, unblemished lamb. It's no wonder that he's presented this way throughout the New Testament. First Peter chapter 1 opens with these greetings, these words that remark upon this. 
that we are cleansed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's, he's rooting that back in the Passover. He's saying that that's the only time that that would be relevant. We've been made clean. We've been made pure by the pure and spotless lamb. The lamb would be brought into the house and it would be observed, you know, for a couple days there. The family would bring in this lamb into their house and would would make sure that, yeah, this this is the lamb. There's nothing wrong with him. There's no issues. And in the same way, Jesus makes his way up onto the Temple Mount. He's there in the Father's house. He's there. He spends the next week, as, as you begin to look at the text, he spends there being grilled and quizzed by the scribes and the Pharisees and the people. They're, they're testing him again and again. And, and each one, it's, yes, he is complete. He is pure. Without blemish, without spot. There's nothing wrong with him. He is put to the test. He is observed and critiqued from every angle. And it is clear at the end that he is without blemish. And then so it would be that the whole of Israel would would all kill their lamb on the same day. And so it is at the end of the week, we find, on Friday there, that Jesus is offered up for our salvation. He is the one true lamb slain and is the covering that the Lord would need to pass over our sin, to wash us and make us pure. These people were celebrating his entrance But they're looking not for salvation from sin. They're looking for salvation from from their Roman occupiers. They're looking to live life their own way. If we can only do what we want to do, we got to get rid of them so we can go about things how we want. This is not about their freedom from Rome. It's not about their freedom to do whatever they want. The freedom and the promise that Jesus brings is in connection to him. These people missed it. They wanted somebody who was going to fit their mold, who was going to do what they wanted. They had wrong expectations. Because you, you can't like manipulate Jesus to do what you want. He's the king. So you have to follow the king. The king doesn't follow you. We have to learn to live under the expectations of his kingdom. To live with the empowering that he gives. It's Jesus' greatest desire to protect and to care for his people. That's, you know, that's why he, he's making his way in. That's why he came. He wants to protect and provide a covering. It's up to us then, how will we respond? How will we respond to the presence of this king? How will we recognize him? Are we 
trying to recognize him in what we are looking for or as he presents himself to us? We can respond by rejecting his rule or we can recognize that this is the only king in all of history who would give his life for his people, who would welcome us to know him and to be in his family, who is generous beyond all compare, who brings us into uh, not just his kingdom, but into his house. Not just simply subjects, but family. This is the type of king that we have. This is the type of, of presentation that, that Jesus offers. It's what we want to respond to as his people and what he's allowed us to uh, partake in. He's made us not just a people who are simply, uh, you know, beneficiaries at a distance, but rather we are called the family of God. We are welcomed into his household and we receive all the rights and benefits that belong to him. It's my prayer that we would grow in allegiance to Christ. We would grow in our allegiance to who he is. Not to culture, not to politics, not to families, not to, you know, all these external things. But that we would, as he has said, and as we've been studying in the Gospel of Luke, that we would seek first his kingdom. The first goal of those who follow the king is, is, is to get up, be healed, and follow him, just like our, our two friends who were blind. They recognized who he was. They said, Jesus, do your thing. He opened their eyes. Immediately, their sight was recovered, and they followed him. That's it. That's our charge. And so it's my prayer that we would all get up and follow him on his journey and walk after him and be empowered by all that he intends to give to us. Let's pray and we'll respond together. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your faithfulness to us. We ask that you would be um, at work reminding us that we have to be a people who are who are not putting you into our own framework, that we're letting you shape how we live. We're letting you shape how we think. We're willing to rethink those areas that we can be so, um, so stubborn about holding on to and let you change us and shape how we um, how we live each day. We need to come in all humility asking for you to, to have your way. And so again this morning we offer you everything, the entirety of, of ourselves and invite you to, to look inside and to change us and transform us and to make us clean, to sanctify us 
to give us a greater desire to know you, a greater desire to grow in faith and to walk with you. We know that you're going to be the only thing, the only one that truly satisfies us. And so Lord, protect us from making those foolish, foolish exchanges, those attempts to be satisfied in other things. Help us to see your surpassing worth. And Lord, call us to respond in worship now. We love you. Amen.